The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Uh, greetings and welcome to Capital Weekly's podcast. I'm John Howard, and I am joined by my colleague, Tim Foster. Hi, John. And our special guest today is Doug Herman of the Strategy Group down in Los Angeles. He is a uh, political strategist, political expert, crunches numbers, and does direct mail, which I want to ask you about that, too. So, Doug, welcome. Thank you for joining us uh, this morning. Great. Thank you for having me on. I want to ask you about the Karen Bass race uh, and Caruso, Bass Caruso race, first of all. Um, were there any particular hurt in the middle of that race as it was going forward, as the campaign was going forward? Do you have any particularly hard spots that come to mind now that you had to deal with and, and uh, survive? Is there anything uh, about that you can share with us about the campaign's innards? About the campaign's innards? Well, yeah. you know, I, I think the, 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 the most difficult thing to come through and survive in a race like that is the spending disparity. You know, he, by the time it's all said and done, I think Caruso will spend $110 million. Um, Karen Bass will spend around 10. Um, that's an 11 to 1 um, advantage. You know, to put it into football terms, that's an entire field of players on one side against one on the other. We all know what would happen in that kind of a scenario if it was a football game. And it's incredibly difficult to withstand that kind of a barrage. I mean, we all think in politics that it's untenable to be outspent two or three to one. Uh, 11 to one was um, extraordinarily difficult. Um, and that manifested itself in many different ways. You know, there were um, moments in time when they were running three and 4,000 points of TV uh, crack against us. And we had no opportunity to respond other than what we could put forward in the earned media. Um, so those, those were tough times when they were up and we were not. Uh, voters were, were voting, and you know, uh, how's that direct mail play into this? Uh, I've always thought of direct mail as really—I I didn't know it was that popular anymore. I mean, I think of internet advertising, broadcast, obviously television. I think of the electronic media, but here, direct mail is coming in all the time. At least where I live, I get—I got enormous amounts of it daily. It seemed like. How's that play out, or did it play out in this race? And if so, was was there an impact there? Do you think? Well, I, I would say um, mail as as a force in politics has become more important rather than less. Um, as you talked about, the Internet uh, came forward and everybody predicted that with the dawn of the Internet age that it would lead to the end of direct mail. Yeah. And what it's done is it's fractured the TV market more than anything, but it's created openings and opportunities in direct mail. You can still reach every single voter in the district with a targeted piece of communication um, and not reach anybody else with TV. You're, you're paying for an entire market's worth of people, whether you need to talk to all of them or not. Um, so it's very inefficient. What also happened is when people migrated to um, viewing and uh, living their lives online, paying their bills, reading their magazines all those things that opened up the mailboxes in terms of competition in the mailbox, you're not always competing against the candidate for whom you're opposing, but you're also competing against Time Magazine and J. Crew and L.L. Bean for space and attention in the mailbox. And all that kind of um, competition dissipated with the um, kind of change in habits of folks to go online. And so there's less inbox mail in mailbox competition. So mail has um, not only retained its strength, it's become more powerful because it's, uh, it's, it's got more ability to stand out in a, in a crowded field. So in this race for the Bass campaign, um, it was a key aspect of how we communicate 
complicated. Um, it was uh, very important to, to make sure that we're talking to Democrats. Um, you know, again, the Caruso campaign had a broad advantage in spending and they could flood every zone. Not, and I don't mean just every zone on TV, but, you know, in language communication and um, newspapers, weekly newspapers, uh, uh, neighborhood newspapers, ethnic community newspapers and social media and everything else in language. And when they're able to do things like that, um, you know, it really becomes an inundation of the marketplace. And you have to be um, as precise and, and targeted as you can in, in response when you don't have those kinds of resources. So we had to go back. Uh, we couldn't put all of our money on TV because we wouldn't be able to reach everybody. Not everybody's watching TV. Not everybody's watching TV when we're advertising. And, you know, the, the advantage of mail in this context is everybody does still have a mailbox. Everybody is still reachable through their mail service. And so we can communicate with the very people who are uh, participating in both the primary and the general election different folks in different universes, um, but we can be very precise about what we're doing. And in fact, we're forced to do things like that in response to the uh, spending advantage the Crusoe campaign had. So one thing we heard quite a bit about up here was uh, Rick Crusoe's vaunted ground game and that he was spending a, an extraordinary amount of money and, and uh, effort on his ground game and that that was really going to come into play on election day. And ultimately we did not see that. Uh, I believe, you know, as the votes came in, they just kept building up for Bass. Um, do you have any insight into that? I mean, were you, was that a big concern for the Bass campaign? And also did you see any evidence of, of what was going on out there? It's really reminded me of, you know, Bloomberg when he's running for president. I remember hearing similar kind of things and then that ultimately did not appear. And, I, and that's kind of what this has reminded me of as a, someone who's been observing this from a distance. Well, we know from years past when LA conducted its elections in the off year cycle that it was not a turnout making election. Those were low turnout affairs in the teens and the single digits. And, and that's why, in fact, uh, one of the reasons why why they moved them to the even year election. Um, if, if we have years of a case study for the mayor's race not being a turnout driver in an off year when it's a standalone, um, a perfect case study in, in, in a sense, I'm not sure that we should have any expectation that it would be a turnout driver in a midterm election. And you know what happened was we had a you know kind of snoozer at the top of the ticket in terms of both ballot measures and, and statewide um, races. None of those were driving turnout uh, in any kind of real or meaningful way. So it means we were in an election where you get what you're going to get um, and people aren't coming out to vote for mayor. You can't tell me that um, there's a cohort of folks out there in the city of Los Angeles who, in effect, had incidental contact with the state government over the last couple of years where they're paying their taxes or renewing their license and becoming a part of the voter registration circle, and that that's what's making them voters. You're just taking non-voters and putting them on the registration rolls. And those were the folks Caruso was, was targeting and, and going after in, in their field effort. And there's just not enough of them, despite the scale they had, um, there's not enough of them who are motivated by a race like this. And so I, my belief was it was never a successful strategy. And certainly, you know, in, in, in a one or two point race, maybe, um, but that's a risky gamble to be betting it on those folks in terms of who he was targeting and, and how they were trying to run this race. And so, um, you know, I, 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 I don't think that was going to be a winning strategy for them ever, but did it concern us? Absolutely. Everything does because of the spending disparity that they enjoyed. 
when you when you mentioned a you know if it had been a one or two point or two or three point race, uh, what did your internal polls show you in say the last week of the towards the election day or the last couple of weeks? I saw one poll a few days before the election that said uh, Caruso was gaining on Bass and was striking within three points. Then on after the election, after the vote count, Bass won by almost ten. And so I don't want to beat up on pollsters, but I do want to know what your polls were were saying. What if they were different from the public polling as election day approached? We we had a, a bigger gap than what the LA Times did. The LA Times came out of basically a week or eight days in advance of the election with a 45-41 race for Bass over Caruso. Um, importantly, it showed Caruso with a 42-43 favorable rating, 42 fave, 43 unfave. And Karen Bass with a 50 to 35 fave on fave. Um, our final poll had an eight point uh, lead for Karen Bass. It was completed just a couple of days before the LA Times released their poll. Um, we're not surprised by this margin. That's what we anticipated it to be. We saw several things throughout the course of this campaign that were always consistent. One was Caruso had a ceiling. Um, and it was always in that 45 range and, and it would, he never exceeded it on any number ever for anything. Two was that Karen Bass was remarkably resilient throughout this. Um, her favorables always stayed right up around and over 50, no matter what was happening in the campaign. And her unfavorables stayed in the low 30s, no matter what was happening in the campaign. So um, she was remarkably strong. She had, you know, there's there's an authenticity to Karen Bass and there's a there's a lifetime of service uh, that folks look at in terms of what she's done and how she's lived her life and you know being a lifelong pro-choice democrat in comparison to a republican anti-choice billionaire developer is quite a contrast and you know i think that what you ended up seeing in terms of the result reflects that and where the the voters of the city are and what they want in terms of um, a mayor to lead them moving forward um, you know other things we saw in our polling were that um, shares my values, somebody I can trust, has the right experience, was very important to how people viewed um, the, the race and, and uh, was driving their vote choice. Um, people perceived in our polling, um, they, they named Caruso as the Republican in the race by uh, you know, huge margins. Uh, at the end, by 40 points, uh, folks thought Caruso's Republican and by 50 points, uh, they thought Karen was a Democrat. So it was pretty clear in this race how folks viewed the two contestants. And um, that, 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 was a, you know, that was a contrast that we drove throughout the race and was important to um, make clear in terms of how they would approach these problems and solve the crises that were facing the city. Uh, Doug, I, I remember, I think it was about a month before the election, maybe a little bit less or a little bit more, but Karen took a hit on this USC thing. And USC had played into various issues in LA before obviously, before the election. But the issue was with Karen having the, uh, having the value of a master's basically that had been, I think had been paid for, or she got that. She didn't, it didn't seem to play out at the end of the day and she won by 10 points after election day. But when that happened, when that USC connection it, what what was your response? What was the response of the campaign internally? How did they feel about it? 
Well, you know, the, the, the campaign view of this was, uh, you know, pretty straightforward. Karen Bass had um, wanted to uh, get a master's in social work to further her understanding of, you know, the system and her ability to be a legislator and service to foster children, which had been a career long pursuit for her um, and, you know, people living on the edges. And so she wanted to get that master's and um, she went through the system to, to apply for that. Uh, much was made about the process because they uh, made a correction to the ethics reporting form on it. And it made it look like she had been hiding and dodging it when in fact she had not. It had been misreported in the first place. It was an accident. It was a mistake, just honest mistake. Um, in the end, uh, you know, the, the issue of USC was um, front and center in the campaign, not just because of Karen Bass, but Rick Caruso was the president of the board of trustees and um, was a member and, you know, an active participant and, and um, agenda setting member of the, the board prior to that as a billionaire who's got buildings on campus named after him. He helped shape that uh, trustee board long before he became its president as a member of the executive committee. And in fact, the major scandals at USC happened on his watch. The Puglia-Fido scandal, the, the um, Tyndall scandal, Varsity Blues, you, know, you name it, the scandals at USC happened under Caruso's watch. And, and the man was the president of the board. And I think if you're a voter, and, and this showed through in our polling, that voters felt that the, the person who was the president of the institution during these scandals was a lot more culpable in the problems and, and the controversies around USC than a woman who had a uh, social work degree and a scholarship to get it. And, you know, that's, that's ultimately the view of, you know, I think what the voters said and our polling showed that was the perspective to heading into it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Tim, you had a question. Did you want to ask something? My question is, uh, one of the things that I found very unusual in this race is that you had Joe Biden endorse, you had Kamala Harris endorse, you had Nancy Pelosi endorse, you had all of these Alex Padilla endorse, uh, all endorsed Bass. Gavin Newsom did not. And I personally just thought that was strange. And I'm wondering if you have any insight in there. Is there bad blood? Was it because he's buddies with A. Smith, whose shop was running the Caruso campaign? Was this just something where he felt like his endorsement wasn't going to make a difference? I, I just cannot figure this out. Do you have any insights? I don't know. It was important to us to have the party endorsement, which we got officially in June, and to have the the you know kind of the brand name um, standard bearing Democrats endorse the campaign, and we worked to execute that. That was a, you know you listed them, you named a bunch of them. Obama um, was um, you know kind of probably the, the key endorsement we got at the end. Um, so those are the ones we got, and you know we got a whole bunch of endorsements, and we um, you know were clearly signaled as the Democratic candidate in this race, which was our goal. These endorsements, and especially around against Caruso, spent his life as a Republican. Um, that was the purpose and the intention in terms of driving those endorsements. So um, that's that's what I can speak to in terms of how these endorsements played out. Uh, I don't, I can't speak to who did or didn't endorse. You know, I, I just, I guess, one last question. Sort of looking forward, uh, what does what, what do you see looking at the broader landscape, not just LA but the state? Um, we've just gone through, obviously, a redistricting and a congressional election, the first one with the new districts. Looking at 2024, do you see any uh, uh, impacts on that race, uh, on that election that we've seen this time that are going to develop? Do you see any national trends developing from California? 
Do you have any sense of where California's place is uh, in the next election? What might happen here? Is our Democratic delegation overwhelmingly uh, Democratic? Is that at risk in some way? Um, any thoughts on that? These are general, but any thoughts? Yeah, typically in, in, in presidential elections, California's Democratic um, dominance and, you know, kind of uh, relevance within the state exerts itself rather than retracts. And, um, you know, I don't foresee, uh, you know, any kind of real rollbacks within California from the national effects of things. I think, in fact, we'll see some of these competitive races that, you know, we're still fighting about the the Gray Duarte congressional seat, for example, is that, you know, is that finally resolved? Um, those, those, again, in 24 would be the type of races be super competitive when the turnout is different because of a presidential race. California, you know, we're, we're, we're 15 months away from the next primary election in, in California um, because the presidential primary in March uh, is just literally right around the corner. I think you saw in LA that it was a change election and people were looking um, for change across the board and they asserted their view on that in, in a multitude of fronts. And I think you're going to see a lot of that um, kind of percolating through uh, in, in some of the vote choices and the things that they make, um, you know, in the, in the 24 election in terms of priorities. And I also think that you're going to have to see some real progress on, in, you know, at least in L.A. County on the homelessness issue. I think folks are looking for that. And the polling says that um, they voters are looking to see progress in the next two years, visible and meaningful progress on that. So I think, you know, that's something that that Karen Bass has committed to and, and says she'll work on as mayor and uh, has made that her top priority. And it's something that voters are, are going to have high expectations on, uh, according to what they're saying uh, at this point in time. So I think that'll be, you know, all in play in the 24 election. And um, I think you'll see a lot of focus and attention on California because it is early in the schedule. So I think that you're going to see um, folks showing up earlier and, and, you know, the calendar is going to be jumbled uh, because the Democrats at least are, are revising their calendar or at least taking a run at revising it. So we don't know what's going to fully look like, but I think you're going to see a lot more attention on and in California by the field earlier than uh, we typically get because of the fact that the race is so jumbled. If, if there's actually one on the democratic side. You know, it just struck me while you were talking whether uh, I should ask the obvious. You think Biden's going to run again? And it's it's an open question. I, you know, that's 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 the question on the table for the Biden family between now and the holidays um, and the end of the holidays, from what I read. So I think, you know, this is this, there's a lot of supposition out there that he will. There's a lot of supposition that he won't. And I think anybody who says they know the answer to that is guessing. Well, I know the answer to that, but I'm not going to say so publicly. <laughs> Uh, Doug, thank you so much. Doug Herman, thank you uh, very much for joining us uh, this morning. This morning being Wednesday. I'm not sure exactly. Tim, when are we going to post this, by the way? We're going to post this our normal time. We're, we're back to our regular schedule. So it'll be Sunday night, Monday morning. And okay. Doug, did you uh, did you want to hang out for our fun final feature or are you going to you going to jump off? I'll, ha- I'll be happy to join you for your final feature. There you go, John. So so bring us in, John. Okay, uh, and now it's time for Capital Weekly's Who Had the Worst Week in California Politics? The worst week. Worst week. Worst week. And John, who do you think that was? I just wanted you to know, you saw my dramatic pause, right? right. Who had the, it's like, it's like Hollywood, you know? We're high tech here, Doug. You probably didn't realize. <laughs> so 
Uh, well, my take on there's several, and Tim and I talked about this earlier. Um, the, uh, Adam Gray is one with that tight race uh, is one of the possibilities because that tight race in the valley, which he may go down. Uh, Vopel, uh, former Assemblyman Vopel, his grandson, apparently was the shooter in that uh, Colorado nightclub. Well, I think I think Vopel is actually in office right now. Oh, he is. I thought he yeah. was out. Oh, he's well, in he, until he, January. Excuse me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there's some possibilities, but hands down, it's got to be Elon Musk. Uh, he takes over. He takes over Twitter after spending 44 billion dollars, not all of it his own money, and immediately. He makes some statements about he's going to make it the marketplace of ideas, free speech, et cetera, et cetera, and then lays off thousands of people. And now thousands more have left out of a beginning uh, employee strength of 7,500, I think is the number, 2,700 are left. He's had about a 63 or 6, 63% layoff rate, I believe I read in the Wall Street Journal. And that includes people who have left and people who have been fired or laid off. So the bottom line is he's having a bad week. Even Donald Trump apparently is hesitating about joining his the social network. Tim, what do you think about the Donald Trump angle? That's yeah, odd. I have to say that was the most pathetic thing I've seen in public in a long time. So, you know, they make this big decision. They're going to have a poll, a public poll, which everyone knows an Internet poll is totally reliable. Right. Uh, call Paul, Paul Mitchell about these Internet polls. And so the poll decides that they're going to let Donald Trump back on. Well, they let Donald Trump back on. They they reinstate his account. And Trump says, yeah, you know what? I'm just going to stick to Truth Social. I don't really need Twitter. And of course, Musk did not want that. He wants the drama. He wants people coming back to Twitter. And so he starts posting these really, in some cases, obscene memes about Trump being able to withstand the temptation to go back on Twitter, which so far, Donald Trump has not He's withstood the temptation. It doesn't even seem to be blinking an eye. It just looked really pathetic on Musk's part to me. That was my read. When you're you like, oh, I'm going to let you back on. And then, uh, you know, it's like ask, saying, I'm going to let my ex-girlfriend come back. And she's like, thanks, I'm good. And uh, I don't know. It, the whole thing was really, it, it was, if I was Elon Musk, I would be mortified and embarrassed at the way this played out. But hey, I'm not a billionaire. Billionaires probably can't really be mortified or embarrassed because, you know, at the end of the day, they still got a billion dollars. I don't. Uh, but Doug, you know, I have to say, you actually had some interesting ideas on who else might have had the worst week. Names that I had not thought of, but boy, you make a compelling case. Yeah. Well, there's some there's some folks in, in Los Angeles County who had a bad election. Um, Sheriff Vinueva clearly did, losing uh, at a level like that. The Hertzberg family is probably not very happy and thankful for the voters uh, after Election Day. Um, so I think those are, are some of the folks looking at, at, at rough times. Obviously, Rick Caruso is going to have a $100 million turkey on his table for Thanksgiving. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's, it's hard to disagree with you all on, on Twitter you know, the 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 patient is bleeding out on the table. That's Twitter. And and the advertisers, the donors, the blood donors are saying we're not going to help because they're all walking away. And with the advertisers walking away, they're not going to have the revenue to bail out of this hole. And so anybody who likes the refreshing their Twitter button might have to get used to something different in the future. You know, going into it, uh, I read that um, Twitter was losing four million a day and that going into it, uh, that level of loss was Musk, Musk, Musk had that goal. Elon had that goal of raising that, uh, somehow monetizing it and erasing that $4 million a day problem. 
And he started into it with layoffs, which is obviously not going to get you goodwill anywhere. A lot of people who had been bringing, like you pointed out, advertisers and people who had been involved were pulling back because some of the statements he made. And then Trump and his, what has he got now, 55 million or used to have 55 or 60 million tweeter, tweet followers on, uh, I, I don't know how many he's got now on, on Truth Social. It's all gone downhill and every, every base you look at, it's declined. So it's going to be interesting to see how that, even Tesla's stock, I understand, has gone down. So it'll be interesting to see how all this plays out and if he can extricate himself from this uh, tunnel that he's dug himself into. You know, and, and also to defend our choice, you know, Elon Musk is a sort of an international figure. Uh, he's a South African uh, emigre who now lives in the United States. But he did tweet out a an answer to a question, I think, which was that he is going to stay in California. Twitter is going to stay in California. He famously moved Tesla's headquarters to Texas, and he said that he was not going to do that with Twitter because he didn't want this to be seen as some sort of a right-wing takeover. And that if he felt if he relocated the company to Texas, that that would be somehow that would be an implication that, that this was a right-wing takeover of Twitter. Uh, I'm not sure again on the logic on that, but, but then this is a guy that's taking the counsel of someone named cat turd too. So what do I know? Uh, you know, so the whole thing is just inconceivable to me. But it's all a full employment act for reporters and uh, consultants and public relations folks and everybody else. So good enough, you know. So Elon no. Musk, thank you very much for having the worst week of California politics. Uh, Doug, again, Doug Herman, thank you very much for joining us. Tim Foster, thank you so Thanks, much. John. And this is John Howard saying we will talk to you next time around. Great. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thanks, Doug. The Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.